Matthew chapter 27 and verse 45. Matthew 27 and verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land unto the ninth hour. The Jewish day being taken to begin at 6 a.m., the sixth hour is noon, and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. The Lord spoke no words until the end of these three hours on the cross. In silence, he bore in his person the penalty for the sins of the world. During these three hours, there was a supernatural darkness taking place in the middle of the day when the sun was at its strongest. I wonder how we would react if Right now, it suddenly became pitch black for three whole hours. A natural eclipse of the sun would be an impossible explanation because this is the time of the Passover, which falls when there is a full moon. And in any case, no natural eclipse can last For three hours. This was rather the Lord using his creation to declare his anger at the sin of men. The darkness was over all the land, which implies that it was over all the earth as well. (coughs) Because As Luke's account tells us, the sun itself was darkened. The Greek very literally states the sun failed. If the sun fails, the whole hemisphere is in darkness. And the other hemisphere is simultaneously, of course, also in the darkness of night. And so the whole earth was in darkness. Because the event taking place has significance for the whole earth and every inhabitant upon the earth. Both in the past and in the future, not just those who were alive at the time, the death of Jesus Christ concerns the whole course of mankind from the creation to the end of the world. The rays of the sun are refreshing and life-giving, but there is no place for such mercies when God is angry with a wicked world. And when sin is being dealt with. This darkening 
was in fact a reaction by the Holy God against the murder of his son. We see in Amos chapter 8 how darkness is a symbol of God's judgment. In Amos 8 and verse 8, we read, Shall not the land tremble for this? And every one mourn that dwelleth therein. It shall come to pass in that day, the day of God's judgment, saith the Lord God, that I will cause the sun to go down at noon, and I will darken the earth in the clear day. And I will turn your feasts into mourning, and all your songs into lamentation. Now, there in Amos, the reference is to a metaphorical darkness at midday. Here, it is a real and actual darkness. Both are indicative of the same wrath of God upon the sins of men. We have a similar image of real darkness associated with the judgment of God with respect to one of the plagues sent upon Egypt in the time of Moses. Exodus 10, verse 21, The Lord said unto Moses, Stretch out thine hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, even darkness which may be felt. Moses stretched forth his hand toward heaven and there was a thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They saw not one another, neither rose any from his place for three days. And so we see the powerful symbolism of physical darkness. The Jewish religious leaders had demanded of our Lord signs in the heavens to verify who he really was. Instead of humbly submitting to his teaching, they asked for dramatic signs. Now they receive a sign in the heaven they had not bargained for. Verse 46. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So about 3 p.m., at the time of the evening sacrifice, the Lord loudly cries out to his Father. It is, of course, noteworthy that he has been enormously physically weakened by his suffering on the cross, but he cries out with this loud voice, 
quoting the words of Psalm 22, verse 1. Written centuries earlier, words which were prophetic of his death. Now, it is noteworthy that here in verse 46, the Lord Jesus does not address his father as father. He's uttering this agonizing cry. But he does not say, my father, my father. He says, my God, my God. Because this is the cry of the Lord as mankind's representative sin bearer. And the great focus here is on that unique role. The Lord is the representative man, the last Adam, the second Adam. He is as a man in his deep distress, having a perfect trust in his God. So he calls him, my God. But he has also lost all sense of his father's presence, of the father's delight in him. And of his unique oneness within the Godhead of the Father, the Son and the Spirit. Now we must remember that the Son had enjoyed this reality of oneness with his Father since all eternity. But now at this specific point in time and history our Lord experiences an utter separation from his Father. Along with the Father's righteous anger upon all the sins of men which have ever been committed or ever will be committed. So he has no sense any more of being in communion with his father. This is why he cries out, my God, my God. Now we cannot for a moment begin to conceive the horror of bearing the weight of the sins of the whole world. It was bad enough prior to our own conversions, having to deal with the crushing weight of merely our own sins. That is unbearable. But to bear the sins of the whole world, how a man could endure that is beyond all comprehension. It could only be a man who was also God. So we observe here that on the cross, the Father has turned wholly away 
from his son. Galatians 3, verse 13. Christ is made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. So, this separation from his Father, which the Lord Jesus now experiences, grieves him beyond words. Sin always means separation from God. And God must punish sin. And we must be very careful as Christians in speaking about the love and mercy of God to sinners that we obscure the fact that sin means separation from God. Because so often the error takes place within the churches that God so loves you that he doesn't mind your sin, he loves you anyway. No! Sin causes separation from God. God is angry with sin. And justice must be done upon sin before sin can be forgiven. God can never forgive sin by bypassing his justice. He never forgives sin by saying, oh, that's all right, I don't mind. Justice must be satisfied. Habakkuk, verse 13, Habakkuk 1.13, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and canst not look on iniquity. The holy God cannot look upon sin. It repulses his holy being. A God who is not a God of justice would be no God at all. So if we just tell unbelievers that God is a God of love and deliberately avoid any mention of God being a God of justice as well, we do them no favours whatsoever. To do that is just to engage in a foolish marketing exercise. Our job is to proclaim the truth, not to market a message to please men. Psalm 9, verse 7. Psalm 9, verse 7. The Lord shall endure forever. He hath prepared his throne for judgment. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in uprightness. And then verse 16 of Psalm 9. The Lord is known by the judgment which he executeth. The wicked is snared in the work of his own hands. 
So God makes himself known by his exercise of justice. At the cross, we see manifested God's anger upon the sins of the whole world. No wonder then that there was an earthquake and darkness in the middle of the day. The creation itself is reacting against the sins of men. And our Lord himself now feels the blackness and bitterness of the judgment of God, of hell itself. Now he of course knows that throughout his earthly course he has done his Father's will perfectly. He knows, of course, that he has been appointed to die as the sinner's substitute. Yet in his humanity, in his incarnation, he has laid aside for man's benefit the fullness of the attributes of his deity. Whilst he knew that he had to suffer and die for man's salvation, yet nothing could prepare him in his humanity for this immediate agony of feeling and experiencing separation from his Father, with whom he has since eternity enjoyed a perfect communion. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So he asked the question, why? He knew he had to die as a sacrificial lamb, but separation from his father's presence... This separation was also the Father's will. Because it is only in this way, by the Father actually forsaking the Lord Jesus, that the full price of man's redemption could be paid. Our Lord then dies on the cross as mankind's sin bearer. That means separation from his father. To satisfy the absolute justice of God. Sin separates men from God. We must be very careful when we witness to others. And saying things like Jesus loves you just as you are. The unbeliever will think, fine, I'll carry on in my sins then. Sin separates men from God. Paul says this concerning the offering up by the father of his own beloved son. 2 Corinthians 5.21 2 Corinthians 
21. He hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. In his humanity, our Lord had never ever sinned. He's the only human being to fall into that category. He is the spotless Lamb of God. In the Old Testament sacrifices, the Lamb had to be without blemish. Our Lord's sinlessness meets that requirement. He dies as a sacrificial lamb in the sinner's place. Exactly as was foretold by the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 53 verse 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Verse 47, some of them that stood there when they heard that said, this man calleth for Elias. Elias is the Greek form of Elijah. So it is possible here that some misunderstood the words Eli, Eli as being short for Elijah particularly as the words were being uttered by a dying man. He could not get out the full name. The Jews of the time thought that the prophet Elijah himself was going to come back to earth as the Messiah's forerunner and companion. They did not, of course, realise that the new Elijah had already come in the person of John the Baptist. But some of those looking on may be thinking that the Lord in his desperation is calling out for help to Elijah. Many of the people, of course, will now be terrified by the midday darkness so they will be beginning to have doubts about their previous mocking of the Lord's claim to be the Messiah there will be those beginning to wonder if a reincarnated Elijah will indeed come to help Jesus Of course, the original Elijah was never going to be reincarnated, reappear upon the earth. But this is what the Jews believe, actually, to this very day. Verse 48. And straightway one of them ran and took a sponge and filled it with vinegar and put it on a reed and gave him to drink. Now, we see here a vestige of human sympathy, possibly from a soldier. The Lord is given sour wine to drink to assuage his 
excruciating thirst, which was one of the primary effects on the body of crucifixion. And this would help the Lord to have some physical strength suddenly in a moment to speak out in a voice of great power. Now we are told in John's Gospel that the reed on which a vinegar-soaked sponge was placed was the stem of a hyssop plant. And uh, interestingly, the hyssop plant uh, was used under the law of Moses as part of ceremonial cleansing. Now, the stem of a hyssop is around 18 inches long. And so this tells us, uh, with someone being able to reach the Lord's mouth with this relatively short reed, uh, that the Lord's body... Uh, would only have been elevated above the ground by a fairly short amount. And so he he was not highly elevated. And so this would have meant that the many mockers watching the Lord in his agony would have been in close proximity to him. Much nearer than if the cross had had a very high elevation. So this proximity would have added to the utter indignity which the Lord endured from all those mocking him. Verse 49, the rest said, let us see, let be, let us see whether Elias will come to save him. So we see again the strength of this misplaced belief about Elijah's reappearance when the Messiah comes. However, the fact that they are talking about Elijah appearing suggests that many in the crowds are now being convicted and are asking themselves, perhaps this is the Messiah after all. Now, we're not suggesting that there were many people coming near to faith. But what was happening, that in the terror of the midday darkness, many were beginning to tremble and be fearful and to think that something terrible was happening before their eyes, something catastrophic, something literally earth-shattering. And we know from Luke's account that the mood of the crowds did indeed change dramatically. Luke 23, verse 48. All the people that came together to that site, beholding the things which were done, smote their breasts and returned to their homes. The things which were done referred to the earthquake, the darkness, and the dramatic sight of the sufferings of the Lord. The people are now sensing that God is angry with them. 
Their sin in desiring this righteous man's death would soon catch up with them. This reminds us of the words of Moses in Numbers 32 and verse 23. Be sure your sin will find you out. Within a generation of these events at Calvary, Jerusalem and the temple would be razed to the ground in the judgment of God. This is why shortly before his death, our Lord said to the daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, weep for yourselves. Verse 50, Jesus, when he had cried again with a loud voice, yielded up the ghost. Now, this is a good verse to use speaking to Muslims because they are always arguing that Jesus is just a prophet, but he's not God. Well, here we see that the Lord dies at the moment of his own choosing. That is the prerogative of God alone. The Lord decrees when his own spirit shall be yielded up and depart from his body. His spirit goes immediately into his Father's presence. We see in this verse 50 that he yielded up the ghost. He caused his spirit to depart from the body. So we see demonstrated here the perfect combination in the one person of both his deity and his humanity. And this, of course, is why both abortion and euthanasia are so sinful, because it is the prerogative of God alone to determine life and death. Now, the Lord dies as a man, but determines as God the moment of his death. His death was, of course, a real physical death, again, denied by Islam. He died from the injuries via his crucifixion. This death, however, had been planned in all eternity, and its purpose was to affect the salvation of men. John's account tells us that the Lord, immediately prior to giving up the ghost, shouts out in loud and triumphant words, It is finished. Denoting that his work of redemption has been accomplished. His work as sin-bearer 
enduring the wrath of God upon him for the sins of all men for all time, that work has now been completed. Now the Son of God, of course, died according to his human nature. And according to that alone, which again is the answer to our Muslim friends who argue that to refute the crucifixion, God cannot die. He died in his humanity. No, the eternal God cannot die. But the eternal God became a man to save men from their sins. Verse 51, And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. And the earth did quake and the rocks rent. Now the earthquake demonstrates God's power in judgment and his anger upon sin. The reference to the veil here is to the large, thick curtain barring the way to the Holy of Holies in the temple. No human being could possibly tear that curtain. We know that from its thickness and the way it was made. It is now miraculously torn in two from the top to the bottom. This was not simply collateral damage caused by the earthquake. It's interesting that in verse 51 here, Luke refers to the veil being rent before the earthquake. This was God's deliberate act and it is of deep significance. We read of this veil or curtain in Exodus 26 Verse 31, thou shalt make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet and fine twined linen of cunning work. With cherubim shall it be made and thou shalt hang it upon four pillars of sheeting wood overlaid with gold. And the veil shall divide unto you between the holy place and the most holy place. This curtain was 80 feet high and over 23 feet wide. It was no ordinary curtain because it would have been at least six inches thick. Every thread was made up of four threads of wool and linen doubled together six times, making 48 strands of material in one complete thread. Cherubim were embroidered into its blue, purple and scarlet colour, representing the angels guarding the presence of God. Never has there been such a curtain as this. It represents that which is precious, beautiful and utterly sacred. It was rent in two, miraculously, Exactly at the moment when the Lord Jesus Christ died, at three o'clock, 
when the priests were busy in the temple with the evening sacrifice. This curtain, this veil, is in fact a type, a symbol of our Lord's flesh. Just as the literal veil had to be torn in two to open up the way to the Holy of Holies, so our Lord's flesh had to be torn to give the sinner access to God's presence. The parallelism of the veil and the Lord's flesh is explicitly set forth for us in Hebrews 10 and verse 19. Hebrews 10 verse 19. We have boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say his flesh. Through the veil, that is to say his flesh. The veil represents our Lord's body. Just as the veil of the temple was the means for the high priest to enter into the Holy of Holies, it had to be drawn back for him to go in. So Christ's broken body and shed blood are the means of passing into the presence of God. The literal veil and indeed the literal sanctuary are no longer needed. We no longer need a physical temple in Jerusalem. Because the Lord's death has fulfilled everything that the temple symbolised. Entrance into the true Holy of Holies has now been effected through the torn flesh of Jesus Christ. So what are we learning from these verses? We are learning that sin provokes the abhorrence of God. This is demonstrated by darkness over the face of the earth in the middle of the day. We are learning that sin causes separation from God and inevitable judgment. To pay the penalty for the sins of the world, our Lord was separated from his Father's presence. He was forsaken for us. We further learn that sin always catches up with men and humbles them. Be sure your sin will find you out. The mocking crowd went home beating their breasts. They were full and overwhelmed with anguish. There is, however, a way of escape from sin. A way has been opened up into God's presence. It is through the veil. It is through the torn flesh and broken body of Jesus Christ that sinners can enter into God's presence. And all who repent of sin and trust in him may today Enter into God's presence and know his mercy. 
So in the cross we see the work of salvation finished. And this is why we call this Friday Good Friday. Because the death of Jesus Christ has saved us from our sins. Amen.